Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 151. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan, to like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan, and of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan. You can find all those things on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you've got all of my social media buttons. And while you're there, give me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Also, if you're at brianmcclanahan.com, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support, and you can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the podcast going, help keep the lights on. If you also want to support The Brian McClanahan Show, go to mclanahanacademy.com. Sign up for free. You'll get some great discounts when new courses are available, and you can also purchase my course on Secession or my course on Alexander Hamilton. So go on out there and do that. And you can also go to LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, History.com, and you can sign up there. You'll get great courses taught by yours truly, Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, uh, Bob Murphy, on down the line. A lot of great stuff out there. So go on out to LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, History.com, and subscribe. It's uh, probably the best uh, educational site on the web in terms of what you get, the most bang for your buck. And as always, you can buy your Brian McClanahan Show gear at redbubble.com. So going out to redbubble.com, you can get t-shirts, mugs, uh, clocks, wall clocks even, stationery, all kinds of things with the Brian McClanahan Show logo on it. So go on out and, and uh, do that. Stickers. So it's great stuff. And you've got my new logo. And you can uh, remember, if you do get that stuff and you send it to me, I'll put it on social media and gladly show you uh, with my logo. So that's uh, pretty cool. All right. Well, last uh, last episode I talked about, which was the Shut Up and Dribble episode, I talked about citizenship and this controversy over who should participate in the American polity. And one one thing I didn't mention in that podcast, uh, you know, when people get very upset about athletes and musicians and entertainers, all these people uh, getting involved in uh, making their their voice heard. One thing we can do, if you don't like it, I mean, they should be should be able to do these things. And in fact, I, I made the argument that they that they have an obligation to do so. But you don't have to listen to them. I mean, you can turn off the television. You can boycott their movies. You don't have to watch an NBA game. I haven't watched an NBA game uh, probably in thirty years. You don't have to to participate in an NFL contest uh, watching that or whatever the case may be. You don't have to fuel uh, the or funnel the money into these individuals so they have this type of money to make these statements. So why even listen to it? Sometimes I wonder why we make mountains out of molehills or we make celebrities out of people that shouldn't be a celebrity. Uh, when you look at the situation that we just had in Florida and, and how how people are focusing on individ- on individuals who shouldn't be ignored, I mean, the, you know, uh, Mr. Hogg from Florida, the the young student there, uh, nobody should even know this guy's name, but yet we sit and talk about him all the time. And I'm 
this is the last time I'm ever going to mention the kid. Except for in this podcast when I'm going to talk about one issue that's come up because of the Florida tragedy. And that is, should 16-year-olds be able to vote? And I'm not going to talk about that particular issue specifically, but I'm going to talk about democracy, which is the great deception of American government. Because if you go into your modern civics class, you go to uh, you know, your high school civics class, or you go to your political science 101 in college, or whatever the case may be, you go to your American government class, Generally, you're going to be told that the United States is a democracy. And you hear this all the time. We've got to save our democracy. Our democracy is in peril. Our democracy is important. You hear this term democracy. Or you hear the term our, our nation and our democracy are imperiled. Um, and the point of all that is to conflate the federal republic, one, with the nation, and two, with the democracy. It's neither. Now, certainly... We, had, we have elements of democratic government. It's a representative democratic government. It's not a direct democracy. We do have direct democracy techniques at the state and local level. We have things like referendum and recall. Uh, and so those are direct democracy techniques. But other than that, we have very little direct democracy particularly for the general government. And that is by design. In fact, the founders talked about this extensively and how they were afraid of democracy, that the problem, one of the problems with the Articles of Confederation is that it had too much democracy. And so they wanted to clamp down on that and ensure that moving forward, democracy was in check. And so as we've gone forward in time, and as we've uh, we've, quote-unquote, progressed in American society, we've come to the conclusion that universal suffrage is the ideal government. Now, this is interesting because people have written about this, spoken about this for centuries as to who should vote. Now, when you look at the Constitution itself, it's very clear on who should vote. Article 1, Section 2. The House of Representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states. And the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislature. Now, you might be thinking, that's not clear about who should vote. It is very clear about who should vote. Whoever the states say should vote. You see, voting and the qualifications for voting are state issues. Now, we have amended the Constitution three times to prohibit states from denying certain classes of people the ability to vote. And we've also amended the Constitution once to say you cannot require a tax to vote. So there are four amendments that have been added to the Constitution to increase the voting electorate. One was when race could not be used as a factor in voting. Two was when sex cannot be used as a factor in voting. Three, you, had to, you couldn't deny someone who was at least 18 years of age. And then four, of course, the poll tax being illegal. So four of our 27 amendments are actually designed to increase the voting electorate. 
to create more democracy, to add to the number of people that can vote. However, Article 1, Section 2 is still in effect. And though those four amendments have been added, they are mute on a number of other issues. So, for example, when we talk about voting and you look at certain states, and this is a federal issue. This is a federalism issue, I should say. Not, not a federal meaning general government, but federalism issue. States can require an ID to vote, according to Article 1, Section 2, because they set the qualifications. As long as the same qualification is used for electing people to the state legislatures. States can also say that non-citizens can vote. It's very clear in Article 1, Section 2, they can do that. They can't say, well, you're not 19, so you can't vote. Uh, They can't say because you're uh, Hispanic, you can't vote, or because you're a woman, you can't vote, or you got to pay me $100 to vote. You can't do any of that. But you can, you can place certain restrictions on voting. You could say you have to pass a general civics exam to vote in this particular state. Now, of course, these would be challenged in court. There's no doubt about it. If the state ever said, we're going to have a civics civics exam so you can vote, uh, it would immediately be challenged. Some group would file a lawsuit and it would go before a federal judge. But is this really a federal issue? They would, they would claim the 14th Amendment uh, and, and uh, equal protection under the law. But is this really a federal issue? Clearly it's not. Article 1, Section 2 shows it's not a federal issue, other than the four amendments that I mentioned that would say you cannot deny someone the vote based on these particular qualifications. Now the question is, though, could, should we lower the age to 16? Well, why stop there? Why not 12 or 10 or 5? Why not when someone can, can uh, first you know, go to school, they can vote? Because this comes down to citizenship, and I talked about this in the last podcast. Citizens and the participatory element of citizenship and government. Now, I'm not advocating that we drop the age. In fact, in my personal opinion, uh, 18, the only reason it was dropped to 18 is because 18-year-olds were drafted into the military And so then, of course, uh, they should be able to vote because they're being drafted into the military. Now, should we think about uh, the draft, to me, is a bad idea. So if we eliminated the draft, could you then increase the voting age to, say, 21? We know that um, most 18-year-olds don't vote. We also know that most people who are 21 or younger, even maybe 25 or younger, Uh, are not uh, well-versed enough in American government to make good decisions. They are influenced by a number of factors, which could be social media. It could be people like LeBron James, who are out there and have a high profile and saying, this is what we should do. I know this happens all the time. They're influenced by people with a large public... Profile and these people that have quite a lot of clout when it comes to whether it's because they're an athlete, an entertainer, a politician. I mean, take your pick. Why they have this type of public clout? They're influenced by these people, and they have very little conception of American government. But you could also make the same case about people in their 30s and 40s as well. 
This is true, even into their late 20s. So again, as I said in the last podcast, it's important that we educate people on government, on society, because that is where we're losing, and we do it effectively. We do it to where we're talking about federalism. We're talking about real issues. We're talking about things that affect their daily lives. And think locally, act locally. These things are important. But I do want to bring in a couple of interesting observations by uh, member, by men who were not members of the founding generation, but certainly were making some interesting statements about democracy at times as these issues came up. The first is John Randolph of Roanoke. Now, I've done a whole podcast on John Randolph of Roanoke. He was part of the convention in Virginia in 1829, charged with uh, creating a new constitution for the state. And one of the issues they had in Virginia in 1829 was expanding suffrage. They were in a heated debate about who should vote. Should we expand it out to every white male? Should they have a property qualification? Should there be some other type of qualification? Because this was an important issue. Should there be some type of qualification? Should they have some stake in the government? Now, we could say if they pay taxes, should they be able to vote? I talked about that in the last episode. Now, everybody, if you use that benchmark, everybody pays taxes. So then then we should say, well, there should be no restriction on age. It should just be taxes to say you should vote. I mean, even a kid that goes out and buys a candy bar pays taxes because with their allowance or because they earned a little money uh, doing a little odd job, now they've paid taxes because they paid sales tax. Or they paid an indirect tax because there's some type of regulation that went into manufacturing that candy bar that increased the value of the candy bar. Or they go out and they buy a pack of baseball cards. They're paying a tax. Or whatever they're buying, a video game, whatever it is today that uh, that uh, that kids buy with the money that they get, however they get it. So should we allow kids to vote because they pay taxes? There has to be some type of requirement or you run into a situation where you have the tyranny of the 50 plus 1%. This is, this is the problem with democracy. Democracy. I remember when I was in high school, the my senior year, the course, which you couldn't get away with this today. There was all kinds of things that happened when I was in middle school, what they called junior high school, junior high school and high school, uh, that you couldn't get away with today. But the course was entitled The Problems of Democracy. Now, uh, I, I highly doubt that you could call a course that today because democracy is the god of American government. If it's democratic, it's great. The more people that can vote, the better. The more people you can register to vote, the better. The more people you can get to the polls, the better. Now, that is a false notion. As Hans Hermann Hoppe said, it's the God that failed. But still, this is the modern perception of government. It's all about democracy. And there's no problems with it unless it's people voting that you don't like. And we hear this person shouldn't vote. We shouldn't let these people vote. Now, because we don't like their opinion on things. That's not what I'm advocating here. We should ensure, in in my estimation, that the people that are voting are well-versed in American government. Whatever their political opinion is, that's, that's irrelevant. 
but they should at least be, they should understand American government. However, this is a question that's been used, or been, I should say, been, been discussed several times in American history. So let's start with John Randolph of Roanoke and a speech that he made in 1829 during this Virginia ratify, or Virginia Constitutional Convention, excuse me. And he said this, quote, In the course of what I fear will be thought my very worrisome observations, I spoke of the tariff law. When the people of the United States threw off their allegiance to Great Britain and established Republican governments here, whether state or federal, one discovery since made in politics had not yet entered into the head of any man in the Union, which, if not arrested by the good sense and patriotism of the country, will destroy all Republican government as certainly and inevitably as time will one day destroy us. Now, so he's saying that the founding generation hadn't really considered this yet. He, in some ways, he's, he's not. they had considered it, and they tried to check these things. That discovery is this, that a bare majority, that a bare majority may oppress, harass, and plunder the minority at pleasure, but that it is their interest to keep up the minority to the highest possible point consistent with their subjugation, because the larger that minority shall be in proportion to the majority, by the same proportion are the profits of the majority enhanced, which they have extracted and extorted from the minority. Now, John C. Calhoun essentially said the same thing. This is where he's talking about the concurrent concurrent uh, majority. But um, he's talking about the, the inability of the minority to protect itself from the majority. But Randolph is saying the point of the majority is not to crush the minority, but to keep it just a bare minority. Because the more the minority you have, the more you can extort from them, the more taxes, essentially, you can take from them. You don't want to crush it. You want to keep it there, right about where it is, about 49.9%. That's where you want to keep it, because then you can take more from them. And after all our exclamations against this crying oppression, after all our memorials and remonstrances, after all our irrefragable arguments against it, Shall we in Virginia introduce this deadly principle into our own government and give power to a bare majority to tax us ad libitum, and that when the strongest temptation is at the same time held out to them to do it? It is now a great while since I learned from the philosopher of Malmesbury that a state of nature is a state of war. But if we sanction this principle, we shall prove that a state, not of nature, but of society and of constitutional government, is a state of interminable war. And it will not stop here. Instructed by the most baneful, yes, and most baneful example, we shall next have one part of a country conspiring to throw their share of the burden of the levy upon the other part. Sir, if there is a destructible principle in politics, it is that which is maintained by the gentleman from Augusta. End quote. This is a war, he said, a war of one section, the tyranny of the majority, what he called king numbers, the tyranny of the majority against the other section of the population. And if you look at what we're doing in America now, we're nationalizing everything. Every issue becomes a national issue. And that's because 
the majority understands their power. They understand. I mean, you look at the, the rub over Donald Trump winning the last election because he didn't win the popular vote. So see, the majority understands that the Electoral College is against them, that the state governments are against them. We just saw in Florida they did not pass an assault weapons ban. So yet, if you can't do it there, you go to the center where they have, theoretically, the power through majority government to make these changes. And they have nationalized everything. Now, even the amendments... If you look at the arguments against the amendments I brought up, the four, there were arguments against those amendments that were saying this is a bad idea. Not because they were against the proposed change to voting, but because they were against federalizing, nationalizing the election process. This was the problem in their mind. And I'm going to talk about one particular speech here in a minute by a Delaware senator. His, the son and father had talked about these issues. And I did a podcast on them earlier in the, a couple of years ago, in fact, about these two senators from Delaware. But this is the point. If you nationalize everything, then you create the tyranny of the majority. You create what John Randolph was fearing in Virginia, in the state of Virginia, where he said Virginia is going to turn into a tyranny. It's going to turn into a war, a war of the majority against the minority, but it's going to be a nasty war because the minority will maintain, as the majority wants it to, about 49%, and so they can keep extracting from them all they want. They can plunder that group all they want. That's the point. This is why Calhoun said we need to protect the minority from the majority, and we are now in a situation in America where people of a libertarian or conservative persuasion, whatever, you know, if you're not, and I know that people say, well, Trump's the president. He says Republicans control the Congress. The Republican Party is in no way conservative or libertarian. There are elements of it that are groups, but it's not. Donald Trump uh, he's done some things, deregulation, look at Supreme Court justices. He's done some things that you could point to and say, yeah, those are good things. But Donald Trump is not hes not uh, someone who is, uh, you would cite and say, that person's a, a real libertarian or a real conservative, whatever it is. Uh, he is um, none of the above. He has some tendencies in that direction at times, but he's not a purist. So you could say, but the the majority of the population in America, they're being thwarted constantly by non-democratic elements, and they want to change all that. They know it. They know it's there. They want to change it. So the point is we should try to do as much as we can to ensure, for example, that the Electoral College is not done away with. This is where the Convention of the States comes in. You know, how can you pass amendments to to codify, to ensure that these non-democratic principles are maintained because it is a check on rampant democracy. Now, I'm going to give you several quotes now from the Bayards of Delaware. From my book, if you haven't purchased this one, Forgotten Conservatives in American History, go on out there and get that. But 
Um, I'm going to read you some quotes from Thomas Francis Byard and James A. Byard dealing with uh, the issue of democracy. And I'm going to start with James A. Byard and a speech he made in 1867. Now, the issue at hand was the 15th Amendment. And people would go back and look at this and say, well, there he is. The guy is, uh, he's, he's just, uh, he's doing, he's opposing the amendment because of race. But he said clearly why he was opposing the amendment. He said, quote, the Republican legislation at hand, that's not his word, quote, was utterly subversive of the semblance of free government and would end in one of two alternatives, either a concentrated, consolidated bureaucratic despotism or anarchy. He also said, quote, I am also opposed to the consolidation of all powers in a single government and believe that the amendment now proposed, the 15th, removes the last barrier which secures the state's a single right against the federal government, end quote. Now, he's saying that by enlarging the electorate, what you are doing is destroying the states because you're nationalizing elections. He was against it. His son, Thomas Francis Byard Sr., who replaced him in the Senate in 1869, said that the proposed 15th Amendment was, quote, a direct, open, flagrant violation of the spirit and letter of the fundamental law of the country that we have all sworn to sustain. Most importantly, these are my words, most importantly, Bard saw the amendment as an attempt to perpetuate the Republican majority, crush political opposition, and centralize power in Washington. And here is his quote. Quote, that, you propose, that the power that you propose to take from the states and deposit with the federal government to consolidate the power of all powers, that which underlies and creates all other powers, and that you propose to place in the hands of Congress, is the intention by a measure like this to destroy first all shadow of freedom in the exercise of their opinion by the people of these three states, Mississippi, Texas, and Virginia, which had to constitutionally ratify the amendment to reenter the Union, and next, having destroyed that, to make their votes the instrument whereby you crush out the sentiment of the northern states. The Honorable Senator declares that which was a Republican form of government in 1787 is not such in 1870. That a lapse of time, the changes in the condition of the country have destroyed the definition and signification of these words which are older than the language in which we speak. Delaware, a Republican state before the United States had existed, as a government that was republic long before you had your confederation of republics, and forsooth, if this doctrine is to be attempted, then we shall have what? We shall have the states that made this union, the creators of this union, converted into mere creatures to be molded and turned as language shall find itself more conveniently used by an accidental majority of Congress. Now, Bayard continued later, that in terms of elections, and this gets into democracy, he said, quote, give us a, tr a true federal election, an election undisturbed by federal money, by federal threats, by federal officials, by federal bayonets, unchain the great heart of the American people and let them vote freely. So when you look at these particular quotes, and again, going back to the idea of universal suffrage, 
Uh, Bard was critical, Thomas Francis Bard was critical of the centralization of the process of voting because, as we talked about earlier, that was supposed to be left to the states. The qualifications for voting were supposed to be left to the states, and he was concerned about expanding the suffrage out to a point where it would become, as he said, a sham. And especially when you interjected money into the contest from the center. And so I think his father actually had a better statement on this. And so I'm going to read you a couple of quotes from James A. Byard, uh, the younger, the, his Thomas Francis Byard's father. He said, quote, I am, however, but a looker-on in Vienna now, but I fancy that I can foresee ultimate results more clearly than many of the actors. There are other matters, such as the increase of large cities and their relative control over the rural population, with the vice of universal suffrage controlled by the common government, and the democratization of the bar and the press, which make me anything but sanguine as to our future. So here he has, I mean, he wrote that, uh, I believe, in 18, 1872, around there, 1870, 1872. And he was already predicting what was going to happen as you started seeing the increase of cities. And if you look at a modern map of America and the American electorate, you have urban pockets that vote one way, and then everyone else in the entire United States that votes the other. And so he was seeing what this urbanization of America was going to do and how that was going to affect, as you started having, as he said, universal suffrage, uh, what that was going to do to future elections and the future of American government. And he was concerned about that. And finally he wrote... Uh, <clears throat> He said he had no faith in the self-government of dense urban masses, for individual character is lost in the crowd until Cromwell or Napoleon comes. And he later said the Yankee school system may stimulate the brain, but it ignores man's moral nature and produces discontent with their condition among the masses. God help the country in which the masses are merely stimulated and trained to act in combinations which are always, sooner or later, controlled by demagogues. So that last statement is just so profound. When, which the masses are merely stimulated and trained to act in combinations. This is exactly what we have in the American electorate today. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Chad Prather, the comedian Chad Prather, uh, posted a picture the other day on social media where it showed a woman who had gone out and voted. And she the caption was, I tried to find the... Hispanic or African-American name, and if I couldn't find that, if I couldn't figure that out, I just voted for the woman, because I don't know who these candidates are. So what we've gotten now, with the Democrats insisting on identity politics, and of course many other groups now insisting on identity politics, that's essentially what we have. We're voting in combinations. We have single-issue voters, particularly interested in one issue or another, and they form combinations, and then those combinations, and the worst of this, of course, is the Democrat Party, but they form combinations, and then those combinations for single issues now become these umbrella-type parties that vote a particular way. And if you look at, say, the last election, 2016, and the, the margin of victory for Hillary Clinton, it was driven largely by California. And California is the worst for these kind of things in terms of an overall electorate. So, where do we go from here? I mean, this is the question. 
is uh, how do we determine? And, and I started this this episode talking about you know should we allow sixteen year olds to vote or why not twelve? Why not five? Why why stop there? Because when you look at uh, when people talked about the obligations and privilege of voting, because it is a privilege, how do we determine what that privilege will be? Who gets to partake in that privilege? Should there be some type of requirement? Uh, of course, um, the question, when you look at the four amendments I mentioned at the beginning that restrict what kind of requirements you can place on voting, um, but there are still many other gray areas. And so, you know, for example, Alabama or other states require an ID to vote. Is that necessarily a bad thing? So you're placing one restriction. You got to at least have an ID. You got to show who you are. But I think a lot of people are thinking about, well, should we have some other type of of a, a test, a civics test? I mean, you have the the funny thing is we have the United States naturalization test. In order to become a U.S. citizen, you have to pass this hundred question test. If you gave that test to most American citizens, they couldn't pass it, and the questions are vanilla. They're not, they're not politically or you know, motivated. They're just vanilla questions. They have several different answers that could be accepted for some of the questions that allow for interpretation on historical uh, events. So it's not, it's not a, a bad test. But most American citizens who were born here couldn't even pass the test. And some of the questions are, you know, what is the capital of the United States? And I've seen this firsthand because I've seen uh, you know, different uh, results from these tests. And people don't know the answers. So it's perhaps there's something to that, some other type of restriction that should be there for suffrage. Uh, and remember, as I said in the last podcast, I view this as, as an obligation. Uh, some people have questioned that as I sent out the, uh, the uh, email with that. You know, How can you say these things are an obligation? I, I, I don't get the logic behind that. You have two different ways to look at this. One, you can be an active participant. Even if you agree with the taxes or the policies, you can be an active participant in defending those things and letting people know why they're important or just. Or you can be an active participant in the other way in being a voice of no. You can also withdraw, but I think that particular type of participant is that negative in that way. Um, if you look at, say, someone like Thoreau, is dangerous to society you still should be a participant as an obligation towards citizenship. Citizenship has privileges. We all exercise those privileges, but you also have an obligation to participate in the process. So um, that's my position on that. And, of course, voting, when you look at uh, this idea of suffrage and what it can do, it can allow the 51% to plunder the 49%. Therein lies one of the great problems of universal suffrage, as the Byards pointed out, as John Randolph of Roanoke pointed out, and why people talked about certain restrictions to ensure that those type of things didn't happen, or at least mechanisms in place that would allow the minority to protect themselves from the majority. And that can be the minority in any way. Uh, it doesn't have to just be the taxpayer mi minority. It can be any minority. Any group of minorities would have some type of protection against the majority. All right, hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time.